This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hey, good morning. How are you? Welcome to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Yes, I am Mary Walter, and uh, we have a really good show for you. Well, I like to think that it's a really good show that we have planned for you today. You know, we, we put our best in. We put our we did the best that we possibly could for you because uh, we want to keep you informed. And in the name of keeping you informed, joining us right now, Chad Wolf. Chad is uh, the acting head of DHS, a Homeland Security Secretary. Chad, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for thanks for coming in. Well, thanks for having me. Of course, I, I want to want to set this up here. This uh, is the mayor of Portland, Oregon, Ted Wheeler, on CNN, and here's what he had to say about federal agents and them doing their job in Portland. This is just crazy. We we were coming to the end of our nightly uh, demonstrations, at least the part where people were vandalizing thing and, and some scattered acts of violence. But we saw the energy coming out of that. We thought it would be done in a couple of days. But then the federal government sent in dozens, if not hundreds of troops. They engaged in what I would describe as really abhorrent tactics. And basically, they blew the lid off of this. Since they've been here, we've had huge crowds come downtown. We've had more violence. We've had more violence. Uh, They basically kicked the hornet's nest. It sounds to me as if he's blaming you. They were just giving very reminiscent of Baltimore in 2015, I believe it was, with the Freddie Gray riots, where they were just going to give them room to destroy, you know, get it out of their systems, have the temper tantrum. And you came in like mean daddy and you made it worse. It's all your fault. Right. Well, so the mayor's got it obviously completely wrong. Uh, At the end of the day, he has abdicated his responsibilities in protecting Portland. And so what he has done, and he has fostered an environment where you have very violent anarchists that gather in the city streets in certain parks, certain areas of the city, every night at midnight, and they go to about 4.30 a.m. They congregate. They're wearing all black. They have masks on. They have weapons in hand. um, They have incendiary devices, and they hurl all of this at federal property and federal law enforcement. And we have to protect that courthouse. That's our mission. Uh, We'll continue to do that. But as we do that, we have seen that the mayor uh, and the city are doing nothing to disperse these crowds. They only react when these violent criminals start targeting city property. So what I would say to the mayor and to others is do your job, protect the city, uh, the citizens of Portland. We can let these individuals protest peacefully all we want. And we see that every day in Portland. We have no concerns with that. And, and we will protect individuals that want to peacefully protest. This is 
very, very differently. I don't know how to underscore that enough for your listeners. What we are seeing in Portland at midnight every night is violent, violent anarchist. Uh, and the president's been clear. I've been very clear. We're not going to allow them to take over federal facilities in a federal courthouse. They want to burn uh, the building to the ground, and we're not going to we're not going to allow that. So you're going. You're. This is your mission. This is what you are tasked with doing, and you are within your rights to do so to protect those federal properties. So I guess my question is, what's the end point? They're not going to stop because you're not allowing them to do what they want to do. So they're just going to keep going, but they're destroying everything around them. They were they're They're destroying small businesses, whatever are left of them. Uh, they're, they have a penchant for just writing swear words on buildings like children. Uh, so will the only thing let be left standing in Portland or the federal courthouse and some other federal buildings and that's it? Uh, unfortunately, it may come to that. Uh, but again, what our authorities are in Portland are very specific, and that's guarding and protecting federal properties. Again, this comes back to a state and local issue, and they need to do their job. And what we're seeing, not only in Portland, of course, other cities are seeing different types of violence occurring, is we need local leadership in those cities to step up. They need to quell the violent activity that's going on while fostering a, an environment that peaceful protesting can occur. I think everyone agrees with that. What they're not doing, however, is making sure that they're condemning this violent activity, taking responsibility on themselves and making sure they disperse crowds, they arrest individuals, uh, and they continue to do that. At, at DHS, we're going to continue to protect that federal property. We're going to continue to investigate. We're going to continue to arrest, arrest individuals uh, that, are, that are committing criminal acts. Um, if the city won't do it, uh, the federal government and DHS will. If they, again, I want to emphasize, if they want to peacefully protest outside of the courthouse all day long, they're welcome to do that. Uh, it's when they start burning uh, the, the courthouse, they start lighting it on fire, and they start targeting law enforcement. That's when we're going to arrest them uh, for what they are, and that's criminals. Now, you can, you can arrest them, and I assume because it's federal charges, it's not a revolving door, and they're just let out like they would be on a local level. Is that, is that right? That, that's correct. So, uh, so far since July 4th, uh, since when we've, um, you know, had a number of folks there, we've had 43 uh, federal arrests, and those are on federal charges. And let me just emphasize something I think you played at the beginning, the mayor saying that somehow the federal government instigated this. That's not accurate. If you go to the mayor's Twitter feed, well before July 4th, which is when the majority of our law enforcement officers arrived, he is on Twitter using, I mean, just read his own words. He's saying that the rooting, the, the uh, riot the looting is out of control. By his own admission, he says mm -hmm. it's out of control well before the federal government got there. What he is trying to do is he is trying to shift blame. He's trying to deflect on, on what is a failed policy there in Portland of allowing these individuals to do this day in and day out. When you arrest these people, I would assume you question them and you find out certain things from them because being hit with federal charges has to be scary. You're not playing the game anymore of going into jail. It's a revolving door. They never press charges and out you come. Hold on, I'm going to cough. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, do, do, are you finding out who is funding them? These people don't work because either that or they're vampires because they're only up at night. They're, they're not day walkers. Someone has to be funding them. There, there's a communication system that is going on here. There's something bigger at play. Are you making uh, any kind of headroads into finding out who is funding these people? 
Well, you're certainly right. Uh, what we see night after night after night is organization, uh, is organization within that violent anarchy, uh, you know, crowd that uh, that tends to form. Sometimes they will target federal buildings. Sometimes they target city buildings and, and Portland Police Department facilities. So they're certainly organized. Uh, we see tactics that are military-like. Um, so we know they're being trained as well. Uh, and so we are partnering with the FBI locally in Portland is investigating and trying to look at not only who these individuals are, but who's funding them, um, who's providing uh, the materials, the training uh, that they they are, are using night after night after night. So yes, the federal government, mainly through the FBI, but also with DHS, uh, are looking in and investigating that. Now, um the uh, attorney general in Oregon, as well as the ACLU, uh, their Oregon branch, has sued DHS. They say that agents are using unmarked vehicles to detain the public without properly explaining the crime that they're being accused of committing. They're, they're painting you as, or I don't know if they're your agents or other agents, as just wearing like a generic, it just says police, it doesn't say the agency, and you see them drive up in an unmarked car and they jump out and they look military and they throw these people in the car and speed away. So it looks like something that would happen in a third world country. What is going on with that? Yeah. So again, it goes back to this environment that I keep talking about that the the local leaders have fostered. What they would like us to do uh, is to come out in marked cars, um, and we know when we go out in the crowd – uh, there will be 50 or 60 folks that start hurling uh, hard objects at us um, and start uh, really attacking our officers. There is no local police there to help. There is no local um, you know, officials there to help. It's only the federal government. So what we do is we try to identify individuals in the crowd that are committing these criminal acts. We try to wait uh, to perhaps when they break off from the crowd, uh, when they're alone, and we try to identify them and pick them up if we have probable cause and arrest them. Um, And so we're trying to de-escalate the situation. We don't want to go into a crowd of 100 people and try to start arresting folks. We know that's how riots occur. That's how uh, a lot more violence occurs. So we're trying to use police tactics, uh, which every police department across the country uses, unmarked cars so that, again, we're not attracting attention if we have to pull up and question an individual. But they've tried to make us into some uh, scary monster, some military, and that's just not what's occurring. We have individuals that are in different uniforms throughout the Department of Homeland Security. They say police on them. They say Customs and Border Protection on them. They say they have all the patches, all the insignia, everything on there. They identify themselves, and they tell them why – you know, they're being questioned. And again, I would I would contend if you're across a, a federal courthouse at 2.30 in the morning with a bunch of violence going on, that's probably if you're if you're not committing that violence and you want to peacefully protest, that's probably not the time to peacefully protest. Or you may want to move several blocks over. You may not want to be in the middle of that. Uh, because again, we're going to do our job. We're going to identify individuals and we're going to hold them accountable. What these individuals want, what the city wants, is night after night after night to do this violent act and to have no one hold them accountable. Uh, And that's not what we're doing. We're going to make sure that those that are committing these criminal acts uh, are being held accountable. So so I hear a lot on social media, and I hear people uh, saying this, and and I was told, one of my friends said, could you please ask him, because he knew you were coming on, why not, if you want to protect the federal buildings, why not show a force around the whole thing, water cannons, you get close, we're just blowing you right off your feet with the water. Like, just show them you mean business and let them go destroy the rest of Portland. Because they're not fighters, they're not brave. They're, like most criminals, they want the easy target. 
So they can throw a couple of things at you, but, you know, you get, get them with the water cannon, knock them off their feet. They're going to go away, and that's that. Right. Uh, so we're, you know, again, I would say all options remain on the table. What we have saw, we've tried to put up um, – uh, embassy-style fencing around the courthouse, uh, they tore it down. Uh, we're reinforcing that. We're, doing, we're taking some other measures. But again, at the end of the day, if the city allows these individuals to just congregate, uh, whatever line we draw at the end of the day, you know, one block away, two blocks away, they see 100 people congregating. They see 200. They see 300. They see 1,000 people. They do nothing about it. Absolutely nothing about it. It's 2 a.m., it's 3 a.m., it's 4 a.m. They're all dressed in black. They have weapons with them. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a problem because, again, the federal government, we're protecting federal facilities. We need the state and local uh, to do their job. They're not doing it. We will continue to protect our federal facilities. They will not be overrun. Uh, if we have to surge more resources in, we will. Uh, but, again, we are protecting those facilities, not from peaceful protesters, as some like to say, from violent right. rioters. And so if the violence stops, and I've told the mayor this, I've told others this, if the violence stops, if you get this under control, I can withdraw my, my law enforcement officers there. Uh, but as long as that violence continues, I've got to protect these facilities. I, I guess the, I guess the the point being is that people are frustrated seeing uh, Americans who are trying law enforcement getting beat up, having things thrown at them, winding up in the hospital day after day after day when they have the power to just end it. And nobody has to get hurt on the other side. There are ways of ending it with a little bit more of a show of force. And I guess the question is, why are we allowing these officers to continually be abused like this? Well, we're certainly looking at a variety of different tactics. Um, again, it's it's difficult uh, in the environment at night trying to identify these individuals and, and who's doing this. So we're trying to de-escalate. We don't want to escalate the situation. Uh, we're trying to work with those local officials. Uh, but at the end of the day, we're going to have to continue to protect yeah. that property, and that's our mission. Our mission, unfortunately, does not expand to the other side of Portland, to other city uh, streets of Portland. We need to make sure that we protect that property. And the other parts of Portland that are being overrun, that are being uh, violated, that's up to the city and the state to, mm-hmm. to figure out and do. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Acting Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf. You definitely have your hands full. I'm, def- I'm going to say that and leave it at that. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, I've got more on this coming up. The president's speaking out about the violence uh, and also uh, rumors of a plan to deploy agents into Chicago. And I'm going to tell you about some things that have been happening in Chicago and other cities across this country that's not in the news. No one's talking about it. I think there's just so many, so many of these stories that some of these I mean, what would be considered big stories of violence just aren't even making it as a blip in your newsfeed or on your TV or on your radio. So we're going to talk about that as well. Coming up, I'm Mary Walter in for Brian Kilmeade. Getting past all the rhetoric, it's Brian Kilmeade. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. 
It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. I'm going to do something that I can tell you because we're not going to leave New York and Chicago and Philadelphia and Detroit and Baltimore and all of these. Oakland is a mess. We're not going to let this happen in our country. All run by liberal Democrats. More federal law enforcement that I can tell you. In Portland, they've done a fantastic job. They've been there three days. And they really have done a fantastic job in a very short period of time. No problem. They grab them. A lot of people in jail. They're leaders. These are anarchists. These are not protesters. People say protesters. These people are anarchists. These are people that hate our country. And we're not going to let it go forward. President Trump speaking from the Oval Office about what's happening in our in our cities. And we were just speaking with the acting DHS secretary, Chad Wolf, uh, about what's going on in Portland, because Portland wants the feds out. They want, I guess, to give everyone in Portland the the power to just destroy their city. And and I heard someone uh, categorize it as a well, it's an eat me last type of mentality among the politicians in Portland, thinking that, you know, we're going to get rid of the we take over the schools. We're going to get rid of the of of the feds to get the feds out. We're going to go after the cops, no more law enforcement, and then they go after the politicians. And it's, you know, the politicians figure, well, at least I've got a couple more years going on here, or maybe at least a couple more months, and they'll eat me last. So out of the Chicago Tribune, they have a piece about about Chicago saying that the U.S. Department of Homeland Security is crafting plans to deploy about 150 federal agents to Chicago this week. Uh, they're called H, uh, Homeland Security Investigations. HSI agents are in are beset to assist other federal law enforcement and Chicago police in crime fighting efforts. Now, if they're assisting Chicago police, if this piece is true in the Tribune, that means that to, that says to me at least that Chicago is welcoming them in. Unlike Portland, which is suing the feds to get federal agents out, Chicago is saying okay. A specific plan on what the agents will be doing has not been made public yet, and the Chicago Police Department had no immediate comment. But, you know, Chicago is a mess. Chicago is absolutely a mess. Here is um, the mayor, uh, excuse me, the Chicago Police Department superintendent uh, talking about uh, what the police being ambushed. Peaceful demonstrations have been hijacked by organized mobs. We just don't want to believe people will act this way toward us, that they would 
take advantage of our sacred right to First Amendment. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. But now I have ordered all of our officers to wear any and all protective gear when protesting care. It's insane. You have kids. They just got a carjacking ring. They carjacked more than a dozen people. One of them in a a, a garage. She was in. A, she was sitting in a, a parking lot in a hospital in broad daylight. Armed carjackers. The youngest was ten years old, from ten to seventeen. How do you not know where your ten year old is? How does that happen? Now maybe this is part of the kids having a homeschool single parent. And they just assume that the kid's at home trying to be a good kid because they've got to go work. Maybe they're essential. And then you wind up with something like this 10-year-old, part of a carjacking ring, carjacking citizens at gunpoint. It's it's just lunacy. Uh, Coming up, we're going to be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. He just uh, has been named... The head of the the GOP party in Texas. We'll talk to him about his success in that campaign. 930 on WML. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I'm Mary Walters sitting in for Brian Kilmeade today. And joining us now is Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. He's the chair of the Republican Party of Texas, senior fellow at Media Research Center, former congressman in Florida's 22nd Congressional District. And he is the author of the books Hold Texas, Hold the Nation, Victory or Death, and We Can Overcome an American Black Conservative Manifesto. Find him on Twitter at Alan West. Lieutenant Colonel, congratulations and thanks for joining us. Oh, Mary, thank you so very much. And uh, it's, you know, just God's grace. And I want to thank all the people that have, you know, prayed and supported and worked very hard for this endeavor to become the uh, chairman of the Republican Party of Texas. And just, you know, remember, it was just two months ago that uh, I came through a pretty bad motorcycle accident. So uh, I'm just so thankful. Yeah, I, I have to tell you, when I, when I read that, the news about your uh, accident, my heart just sank. And I'm, I am so glad that you, you both of you came out of that uh, fine. You know, there were, there were not worse injuries than what you already had. So you're right. That was definitely your guardian angels were working overtime on that one. <laughs> the yes, the thing were. that I'm really sad about, though, is apparently you're a certified racist. Um, yeah. That is according to the uh, the uh, D- T- Texas Democrat Party. Their spokesman, Abi Rahman, said uh, they're disgusted and but not surprised that the Texas Republicans chose a certified racist conservative hardliner like Alan West as their new chairman. <laughs> 
You know, you you, you just got to laugh. I, I mean, because <laughs> when you're dealing with people that are that stupid and that delusional, obviously he doesn't know who I am. But the interesting thing is that he, I'm I'm a guy that was born in a blacks-only hospital, grew up in the same neighborhood that produced Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, the old Fourth Ward neighborhood in Atlanta, Georgia. John Lewis, God rest his soul, was my congressional representative growing up as a kid in Atlanta. And this person calls me a racist. I mean, this. I guess I we, we really have gotten to an interesting point in the United States of America. But the sad thing is that the Texas Democrat Party said that about a, a strong, conservative, African-American man. Can you imagine if the Republicans had said something like that about a Democrat who had just uh, – you know, African-American had just been elected to be the head of the New York Democrat Party. Uh, and as well, Mary, what was really uh, hypocritical is that we just saw Sheila Jackson Lee come out and refer to white people as rednecks. Yeah, well, I, don't get me started on that one. Uh, but but here's the thing. We know that the Republicans don't fight. Republicans refuse to get in the mud with the pigs. And if you don't get in the mud with the pigs, you're not going to win. You're never going to catch a pig if you don't get in the muds with the, mud with them. So the Republicans need to fight. The Republicans need to learn how to fight. And you may have to do some things mm-hmm. that you think are beneath you. And um, if you want to win, you know, I, I always refer back to the Revolutionary War in this country when the um, the British were very upset with the Americans because the British would come out and they'd, they'd play by the rules and they would line up and the first line yeah. would all get shot down and then the second line would come forward and the Americans were in the trees and they were hiding behind mm-hmm. stuff. That's how that was, that's how we won, how we beat the greatest army on earth at the time because we didn't play by those rules. And right now the Democrats aren't playing by the rules. So if the Republicans keep lining up like the British and follow, you know, following out rules that the British have set up for them, they're never going to win. And I'm not saying we need to, you know, sometimes run around calling everybody racist. But if we call people out on their racist comments, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So Republicans have to learn how to do that. No, we do. We, you know, one of the, and that's exactly what I wanted to bring to the Republican Party of Texas is that we're going to go on offense. We're not going to play defense. We're going to dominate the narrative and not be reacting to their talking points. You know, the the Americans in the Revolutionary War, we, we really did fight as insurgents, and and like you said, we didn't line up and have the nice uh, gentlemanly uh, gatherings. But the Republicans have to understand: you cannot bring a plastic spoon to a gunfight. And we have been doing that for too long. And all of a sudden, you look and see what is happening in our streets. Look at the violence in Portland. Look at what happened in Chicago. Look at how they're attacking police officers up in Denver. Uh, This is not about two different uh, political parties. This is about two different philosophies of governance. This is about the rule of law or the rule of the mob. And so that's what we want to clearly do here, much the same as uh, William Barrett Travis at the Alamo drew a line in the sand. We're drawing a line in the sand here in Texas. Yeah, absolutely. Now, speaking of Texas, Senator Ted Cruz uh, was was speaking about the president and Texas. And I'd like for you to listen to this and then get your reaction to it. The Democrats win Texas. It's all over. Texas is the single biggest target for the left in 2020, politically speaking. The 38 electoral votes at stake. There's a U.S. Senate seat at stake. And Texas is the key to national domination for years to come. And make no mistake, the Democrats and the liberal media, they're doing everything they can to take Texas. 
the last five Texas polls in a row have shown President Trump and Joe Biden in a virtual tie. This is a real race. So what do you think about that, that if Trump doesn't win Texas, Republicans will lose the White House and the Senate? And you just had the Cook political report moving 20 seats to the Democrat side in the House. They say it is the most they have ever moved to one side in one shot in the history of doing their predictions. Well, that's all fine and well, but uh, it's a new day here in Texas, and I want to make sure that that does not happen in Texas. But, you know, you go back to October of 2018, that's why I wrote the book, Hold Texas, Hold the Nation, because you can sit back and you can see this, and we had to start talking about the clear delineations between constitutional conservatism and progressive socialism. All the major population centers in the state of Texas are controlled by the progressive socialists, Democrats, far-left Democrats, uh, and that's their you know blueprint. But where do you also see the greatest amount of failure of leftist policies are in those major population centers? I was down at the uh, Republican Party uh, headquarters in Austin, and when you are in Austin, it resembles San Francisco. You see the homeless, homelessness. You see the boarded-up uh, uh, stores mm-hmm. downtown. Uh, and so this is not success, and we need to do a better job of talking about the policies, talking about their principles and our principles, and again, making that clear delineation between the rule of law and the rule of the mob. We have not been good communicators. We have not marketed our our message very well, and that's going to change here in Texas. It has to because you you mentioned Austin and and the urban centers. Texas is being inundated with everyone fleeing California. And you see it happening Mm -hmm. around the country. They're like locusts. They flee California. They go to Texas, but they vote for the same stuff they just left. So they devour California. They see fertile ground in Texas, lower taxes, better Mm -hmm. schools. Oh, we're going to go there. And then we're going to destroy that. New Yorkers did it to New Jersey. Now New Jersey and New Yorkers are moving down to the Carolinas and Florida and doing the same thing to those places, Northern Virginia with those fleeing Maryland. I don't know how you counter that because the the connection doesn't seem to be made in their tiny little brains that they're committing suicide. Well, you know, I call that the locust effect. You, you, You nailed it right on the head where you go from fertile ground to fertile ground and you just continue to destroy it. You know, Albert Einstein saying it very succinctly, the pure definition of insanity is continue to do the exact same thing and think you're going to get different results. And that's what you see when people are fleeing California, Illinois, New York, New Jersey, all of those failed blue states because of their economic policies. And then they come down to successful red states and then they flip them. So that's why we have to go on offense here in Texas, because when you look at the growth, the opportunity, the prosperity, uh, 10% of Fortune 500 businesses and corporations here, I believe we're the 10th or the 11th largest economy in the world in the state of Texas. Why would we want to see it resemble Venezuela? But see, the thing is, the disconnect is with these people is they say, well, we want democratic socialism, not socialism like Venezuela. We want democratic socialism. And I've had these conversations. Believe me, I could go outside and go talk to a tree and get more acknowledgement than I can from from talking to these people. And, And that's why I fear. And I think that Ted Cruz was right in his fear for California, because you have a mark. You've you've got a target on your back because the Democrats said they're going to take Texas. 
Yeah, and uh, their their mantras turn Texas blue. And the thing is that we have never defined what they they call blue, and that's what we're going to do at the Republican Party of Texas is define what turn Texas blue means. And look, you're not going to get everybody. You know, th- when I was a young cadet, the drill sergeants used to call us stuck on stupid. There are people out there that are stuck on stupid. I have challenged people here in Texas to find five people that don't think and believe as they do, and get three of them. Uh, and that's 60%. And guess what 60% translates to in a political contest? That's called that's a landslide. So I'm not looking at getting the 100%. I definitely want to be focused on the 60%. And if I can, 65%. And if there are people that want to have, you know, wealth redistribution, nationalizing economic production, you know, the welfare and the state, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I just have to work a little harder. But I'm not going to give up on the other 60 to 65 well, I think I think the party is in good hands in Texas. Congratulations again. And feel free. I've been saying now for a while and I think feel like I'm just, again, talking to a brick wall. Every Republican should have one of those those plastic bracelets. And on it, it should say WWDD. What would Democrats do? And try to think like them. It's really not that hard to think like them. You know, yeah. they're going to whatever it is, their go to's are launch an immediate investigation, get in front of the cameras and scream racism. Or, or lie about the other people. And, you know, I don't, I, I didn't like lying in politics. I know that that's naive. But when Harry Reid was questioned about, you know, Mitt Romney's taxes and how that was false, he said, well, it worked, didn't it? So if those are the rules they're playing by, maybe Republicans are going to have to do some distasteful things as well in order to at least be on the same playing field. So best of luck and just keep remembering what would Democrats do? That's right. We don't have to do anything uh, distasteful. We just need to show up and show courage. That's it. Very true. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Allen West, thank you so much and best of luck. God bless you. Thank you, Mary. Thank you so much. we got more coming up right here on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base. It's Brian Kilmeade. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I think it's pretty clear that Stone threatened him. Uh, He probably threatened him privately, but he also threatened him publicly about what he would say if he uh, had to go to prison. And this is a continuation of the cover-up to try to prevent us from knowing all of the details about what they actually did in 2016. What he did was to use the awesome power of commutation as part of the pardon power of the president uh, to basically shut up Roger Stone uh, so that Roger Stone would not uh, spill any more beans about what actually happened and how much Donald Trump actually knew. As Hillary Clinton speaking with Joy Reid, and uh, boy, a little bit of projection there, Hillary, threatening people. Mm -hmm. I guess you would know a little bit about that. That's just my hunch. And it's it's so funny because clearly she ignored or just blacked out during the entire Mueller investigation and the release of the Mueller report. Hillary just was maybe she was on a binger. I don't know. But she clearly knows nothing about the Mueller report that said there was no collusion. We spent I think they said something like 40 million dollars, three years out of Americans lives, almost three years 
uh, put us through this national nightmare just to um, disprove uh, a theory that we all knew wasn't true to begin with. And if she wants to talk about uh, commutations and pardon powers, she might want to ask her husband about the whole Susan McDougal uh, commutation that he had their pardon that he had of Susan McDougal. Remember, Susan McDougal chose to go to prison rather than tell what she knew about Bill Clinton's involvement in Whitewater. Remember that? And then, wow, she shockingly got a pardon. Weird how that happens, and no one remembers how how when she's t- when Hillary is talking about President Trump and uh, he commuted Roger Stone's sentence. It's weird how she doesn't remember what her husband did with Susan McDougal because if I remember correctly, Hillary was up to her eyeballs in the whole Whitewater thing too. Odd. Uh, there may be more. More people hoping for the pardon power, because according to KT McFarland yesterday on America's Newsroom, she uh, predicting uh, uh, some some indictments coming down the road here from the Durham probe. Here's KT. Now there is cold, hard evidence. It turns out that these senior officials in the intelligence community, the FBI, they all took notes. They all texted each other. They all had handwritten notes of meetings. And so there's no disputing the fact that there is cold, hard evidence. And from what I'm hearing, that uh, that the Durham investigation and the Justice Department is getting to the point where they are, um, I think we can expect some indictments before the end of the summer. And remember, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows had said something similar earlier, uh, I believe it was the end of last week on Friday, he was also on Fox and he was saying that, you know, he's looking forward to some some movement by the end of the summer. Here's the thing, though. I don't know about you, but I am so tired of getting my hopes up. Ugh, right? Like, I'm so tired of getting my hopes up about something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. How many times have we been told that, oh, it's coming this weekend by Friday, by Friday, we're going to hear something from the dorm report and nothing, nothing. Radio silence. It's like I'm waiting for Godot here. You know, it, it just goes on and on and on. And so I, I want to believe it. I want to believe that we're going to hear something before the election, but I'm afraid that it's going to get too close to the election. And John Durham's going to say, well, I don't want to influence the election, even though the entire Durham probe is happening, then the entire Durham report and investigation is happening because of a group of people who were trying to influence an election last time around. But oh no, we don't want to influence the election this time around. If this is about something that happened last time around, four years ago almost, right? It was happening right now, so four years ago, and, and we're afraid of influencing the election. If this is about the past, then fine, let it be. That's not going to influence this election, but the Democrats will cry uh, that it is influencing this election. Now, we also know that um, there were some some papers that were released under a Freedom of Information Act with Judicial Watch, and we found out they were released on Friday. People finally had some time to go through them. And they show that the president was president for 24 hours when Peter Strzok, who at the time was an FBI supervisor, sent a note to his boss, and he was upset that a colleague had given the White House a counterintelligence briefing and had not consulted Peter Strzok about it. So Peter Strzok wanted to use the meeting to further the Russia collusion investigation. That agent, Jennifer Boone, who we just learned was given a promotion. So that name now coming back, you're starting to see a lot of these names come back into play 
right? You say like, oh yeah, I heard that name before. She had given a White House briefing without Strzok's knowledge in these notes dated January 21st, one day after the president has taken office. I heard from Redacted about the White House CI, which was a, uh, a intelligence briefing, routed from redacted. I'm angry that Jen did not at least CC me as my branch has pending investigative matters there. This brief may play into our investigative strategy, and I would like the ability to have visibility and provide thoughts and counsel to you in advance of the briefing. Remember, by this point in time, though, they knew that the Steele dossier was bogus. They knew that it was an unreliable source because they had already spoken to his, to, to, um, his subsource, by then, the FBI. So the, the so they knew by that point that it was all just rumors and innuendo and all second and third and fourth hand information. It was nothing. So they knew that the FISA warrants that they were getting for Carter Page should have been done by then. All of this known. So hopefully, maybe by the end of the summer, I don't know, fingers crossed. I'm Mary Walter, and you're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Fox News Podcasts Plus. You can enjoy all your favorite Fox News Podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach, it's Brian Kilmeade. And good morning to you. Yes, welcome to the Brian Kilmeade Show. I'm Mary Walter sitting in for a vacationing Brian Kilmeade. I'm going to start off with Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist, Fox News contributor. Find him on Twitter at mgoodwin underscore ny post. Michael Goodwin, welcome back. My pleasure, Mary. Thank you. It's always great to have you on. You wrote a phenomenal column. I just love this, and I, I just love the way you did this, and you did the research for it. The family that owns the New York Times were slaveholders, and you go back into their family tree, and you this is actually an update because you had previously written about the mother of uh, Adolf Ox, who was the, the, the founder of the New York Times, how his mother supported the South and slavery. And, and there is a long history there of and very strong Southern sympathies in their family. And then you updated it. So what did you find out as you continued to dig? Well, uh, Mary, in the, in the first column I did, which was a week ago for last Sunday, I laid out this long Confederate history. I called it the Confederates in the Closet, uh, which the New York Times has never really talked about publicly. There's, you know, it, it's been an acknowledgement of it in certain books written about the family, but it was always treated as something of an idiosyncrasy on the part of Adolf Ox's mother, Bertha Levy, uh, who came from Germany as a teenager in the 1830s and lived with a, an uncle in Natchez, Mississippi. And that's sort of where the story ended. We, we, no one really knew the name of the uncle. I mean, everyone assumed it was either her father's brother or her mother's brother. And it's, but what turned out to be the case was that the uncle dropped his surname. It was her father's brother, dropped his surname, 
and went by a different name. Uh, instead of, and so instead of John Levy, it was John Mayer. Uh, I think Mayer was a somewhat of a, of a version of his original middle name. Uh, so he, he anglicized his name, became John Mayer, uh, lived in Natchez, Mississippi, and uh, was uh, a slaveholder. And probably, I mean, he was quite uh, affluent for the time uh, in the circumstance. He, he was a merchant, uh, owned a store, and had 14 children. So uh, a historian I spoke to, Robert Rosen, who has written a book called Jewish Confederates, um, talked about, he said in, he didn't know Mayer's real name. He had talked about Mayer in his book, cited him as uh, you know, having a son who became a major in the Confederate Army, uh, but didn't know his connection to the New York Times. And uh, Robert Rosen said to me that, you know, given the circumstance of, of the situation, given his large family, given his relative affluence, he is exactly the kind of person who would have slaves. And so I was able to track him down through the census. The census, oddly, I, I didn't realize this, has this thing called the slave schedule. So if somebody had slaves, uh, there is a kind of separate form that the, that the census maintained. And this is something I'd never heard of. So it would be the slave schedule of John Mayer. And on that form, they would list his name, John Mayer, and but not the names of the slaves, only their gender and age. Uh, and so it, it was showing him in 1860 with five slaves. Now the significant, and I tracked down another ancestor of the Salzburger Ox family, uh, who was a slave trader and auctioneer, merchant and an auctioneer, in the pre in the post Revolutionary War, South Carolina. Uh, so, I, 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 to me, Mary, the significance of this, and that's what I updated with mm -hmm. the, the first column. I said I couldn't find any evidence of slavery in the family. But in the second column, I said, I have found it now, uh, and here it is. And I laid out those two cases. But the point that I want to make about these columns is that they, they show me that the New York Times is, is ultimately hypocritical for its treatment of Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson. I mean, it dismisses them. The, 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 the latter two as slaveholding presidents, and it even said in a recent news article on Mount Rushmore that uh, Lincoln was slow and late on emancipation. Now, I don't have, haven't found any record of the New York Times family emancipating its slaves before it was forced to do so. Uh, so will they look at their own family with the same jaundiced eye that they have toward Abraham Lincoln? I don't think so. Uh, where are all the social justice warriors at the New York Times who want to burn down the country and tear down the statues and defund the police? Are they going to examine the New York Times with the same 
Puritan aspect? Uh, are they going to demand the New York Times come clean on all this? I mean, there are, has to be enormous amounts of correspondence. Uh, Adolf Ox, for example, the patriarch of the Times family, he bought it in 1896. His family still owns it. I mean, it's a public company, but they control the board of directors, and so therefore they get to pick the publishers, and all the publishers have been members of that family. I mean, this is the classic case of, of sort of white supremacy, if you want to see it that way. This company has been handed down. And so if you look at the content of the New York Times over the ages, uh, irredeemably racist in many, many cases, many ways. I point out some of them. I mean, the embrace of Jefferson Davis as a great Southern leader in 1906. Yeah. Uh, on and on and on examples of that. And all I'm asking is for the New York Times to examine itself in the same way it demands that corporations, other families, other you know, politicians examine their own archives, go through it, put your own investigative reporters on the job, let them treat the New York Times the way you let them treat, you know, Fox News or any other company you write about. Uh, but, but they haven't done that yet. And, and I find it really disappointing because let me just say quickly, I grew up at the New York Times. It was my, I started there right after college, stayed for 16 years, had wonderful experiences, wonderful training. I think the New York Times really was a great newspaper. But I also think Abraham Lincoln was a great president. And I think George Washington and Thomas Jefferson were great, true American heroes. They should not be dismissed because they did something wrong somewhere in their life. Slavery is an abomination. It's an abomination for the family of the New York Times, as well as for George Washington and, Abe and, uh, and Thomas Jefferson's descendants. But the New York Times doesn't treat itself that way. It treats no. only the others, and it, it makes it seem like they are no good those Jefferson and Washington and even Lincoln are no good because we, the New York Times, find failings in their conduct, despite all the good they did. Well, we say the same about the New York Times. The New York Times did some great things for the First Amendment, and I'm grateful for my experience. But they also had slaves, and they have to acknowledge their own bad. Well, you know, listen, I want a pony for Christmas, and that's not going to happen. Just, it's, it's, that, you know, that's, it's just not happening. So, you know, we, we could say that, that we want them, you know, to, to examine themselves, but they're not going to. And the only way this gets anywhere is if there's this huge hue and cry, because it's going to be memory hold, as the left likes to say, by every other media outlet, because they're afraid they, once it starts to come for them, is when it's when it gets shut down. That's where the line is drawn. Do you remember during uh, in Atlanta when they just had some rioting there? There was a woman who was doing a column and she was talking about it, and 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 then all of a sudden oh, she was blogging and posting about, it, and then all of a sudden it all changed when they started breaking the windows in her building, and then she's I'm hiding under my desk. I'm so afraid. Oh. The mob isn't so great. It's okay when it's breaking the store windows of some shop owner because that's justice. But when they're breaking your windows, now all of a sudden it's not so great. That's where the line is drawn. So while I would love to see this turn on them, it's probably not going to. I think it takes a lot more than just someone who's considered a conservative columnist to point out the hypocrisy. They, hypocrisy is a superfood to the left. They thrive on it. 
because it just makes them stronger because every time they get away with something with and they're hypocritical, it just makes them that much more bolder for the next time around. So when it comes to this, they're going to be very bold, obviously, because they, they're not going to get caught out, get called out on this at all. However, you do have some calmness leaving uh, Barry Weiss, uh, most the most famously who left the New York Times. And this is just a little piece of her here. I just want to refresh the audience's memory here. Barry Weiss, this is on Joe Rogan, talking about the culture at the New York Times. I think that one thing that's overlooked in this, when we talk about cancel culture, right, and the social ostracism and the actual firings that can happen when you uh, break with one another orthodoxy, is that the people who are inoculated from it are people that are already extremely successful and can take the risk. It's why Ricky Gervais can be Ricky Gervais. It's why J.K. Rowling can tweet what she tweeted a few months ago and survive it because they've already accumulated enough capital. The people that I hear from that are completely screwed by it are people like artists and poets and untenured professors who aren't famous and no one knows about and are, you know, having to go with a begging bowl on Patreon or Venmo or whatever to get support after they've, you know, made a bad joke or whatever it is. Yeah. So she was talking about the cancel culture there. She was driven out by the young 20 somethings uh, who now run the show apparently at the New York Times. So I I don't know how you get this message out there. I uh, listen. I admire your tenacity. I admire you going through the family history of 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 the Ox family and the Salzberger family. God bless you, because I don't have enough patience or desire to go through my family's history, let alone someone else's. (laughs) So so you're very tenacious or have a lot of time on your hands. But but it's sad. Your point is well taken, which is why I, I love that you're on today. Because honestly, I didn't even hear about your first. I, I didn't. I didn't read the first column. Do you, you just see what I'm saying? I I was to, to was was the second one that caught my attention. I was like, oh wait a minute. Of course, because I've said it's only a matter of time before the mob comes for them too. But when the mob are the people employed by the New York Times, they're just part of it. They're not going to come for their own. They're going to sit there in their hypocrisy and hope nobody else notices. So how, how do we fight this? If we can't fight it by proving that they're hypocrites, how do you fight it? Uh, good good points all. Um, you're right that there is a um, – I, I would just add, add one more thing to everything you said, and that there, there is also a fear on the right uh, of the New York Times. Uh, there, there is this sense that they will, they'll outlast you, they'll, they'll overwhelm you with reporters, uh, so people don't want to cross them. I mean, I think the New York Times uh, sets the agenda. I mean, I, I have been accused of being Times-obsessed, and, and I am, uh, I plead guilty for a certain reason. I think outside of government, the New York Times is the most important and powerful institution in the United States. I think that it has enormous influence in terms of how issues are discussed and presented and understood in this country. Even though it is often wrong, often wrong, it is, it is still the Bible for untold millions of people. And most important, it sets the agenda for much of the media. Uh, it, you know, the CNN would not be CNN without the New York Times. If CNN would not dare to go out there as far as it goes with its nuttiness without feeling that the, the New York Times has our back. Uh, same with MSNBC. These, these are people who have taken the New York Times to heart and then gone the next step. 
Uh, they put it on the air. They say it. They, they elaborate. What, what the Times doesn't print, CNN and MSNBC do on the air. And, and others around, around the country, I mean, I, I mean, I'll just tell you a really quick story. Years ago, after I won the Pulitzer Prize, I was a juror um, on, the, on the selection committee. And you get assigned to uh, a panel uh, that is looking at one area, say it's investigative reporting or explanatory journalism or commentary. And you get all the applications are sent to this panel and you select the three finalists. So the thing that I realized sitting there reading all of these submissions from papers around the country was how they all sounded like the New York Times. They were all written in the same format, the same structure, the same, you know, kind of an anecdotal lead and then the nut graph and that way of of writing. It is made to appeal to the judges of the Pulitzers because the New York Times has set that standard because the New York Times essentially controls the Pulitzer Prizes along with the Washington Post. So there is this culture that is dominant uh, in the media today. Yeah. And, and I think there's a lot of fear of going up against it. I think sure. the, the the rhino Republicans, what are they but fearful of right. the left? I mean, that that they worship, they yes. they live in fear of the New York Times and the Washington Post. So well, I, I think it is important that when my, when there is evidence of this hypocrisy, when there is something, a clear violation of their own standards, that we call them out. Now, I don't know if, if, if the crowd follows, but yep, Michael, for me, it's still important to do it. Yeah, we, we got to run. I'm so sorry, but we're out of time. But a fascinating conversation. Michael Goodwin from the New York Post. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a fantastic day. Thank you. You too, Mary. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. It's Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. All right, coming up on the Brian Kilmeade Show, we're going to talk about that St. Louis couple. Remember them, the McCluskeys, Mark and Patricia McCluskey. We all know their name now. They were they were seeing video of them in front of their mansion. I don't even want to say a house. It's like a mansion. If it's made out of like concrete marble and you have statuary, I consider it a mansion. So they were in front of their mansion on a private gated street. Now the, they were on they they live right down the street from the mayor of St. Louis, and that street is private and gated. And these protesters, if you will, I don't think they're protesters because they broke the gate down and trespassed. That's also known as breaking and entering, I think. Not 100% sure. Not a lawyer. But when you break the gate down to get into a gated community to go protest in front of the mayor's home in order uh, to, you know, to call for her, uh, her to resign – I understand where that's really scary to see hundreds of people coming down the street and you know they've broken in. So they stood in front of their homes with weapons. They have now been charged. Yeah, they have been charged and uh, with a Class D felony. Now, this is a big deal because if they are convicted, they lose their right to bear arms. They lose their Second Amendment rights. Last I heard, 
none of the people who broke down the fence and paraded down that street who were the criminals doing something illegal have been charged, but we'll find out. Coming up, we're going to talk to Mark Cox of the Mark Cox Morning Show on our affiliate KFTK in St. Louis. And he'll tell us, he'll give us the details about this. I'm sure there's news on it. Mark will have it all. That's coming up on The Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Yeah, I, I guess in the technicality of the law is they have to determine whether or not the uh, uh, the weapons were readily capable of being, uh, uh, you know, fatal or, or uh, causing serious bodily harm. And so they have to take them and test them and that sort of thing. And there'll be uh, some revelations that come out about that. But the bottom line is that, uh, you know, the police, I've said this before, the police that came out to issue the warrant didn't want to have to do it. They knew yeah. that they were just doing their job. They were very polite about it. But nonetheless, you're right. I mean, they present the mob to our door and then strip us of our ability to defend against it. That right there, Mark McCloskey from St. Louis. And now to discuss that case with updates in it, Mark Cox. Mark is the host of the Mark Cox Morning Show on our affiliate KFTK 97.1 FM Talk in St. Louis. Mark, welcome to the Brian Kilmeade Show. How are you? I'm doing great, Mary. Thank you. I'm so glad to hear that. Now, listen, what's going on in St. Louis is kind of crazy, and I think most people realize this, but Mark and Patricia McCloskey were the, were the couple that were seen in front of their mansion uh, defending it, standing there and brandishing weapons uh, poorly, I would like to know. Both of them need to go to the range, and they need some lessons, uh, especially her. She's flinging that thing around you know, all over the place. Uh, because there were uh, mobs of people, hundreds of people, that broke through the gate in their private community and were marching down the street to the mayor house they they allege that they were being threatened by those people saying that they were going to come back for them so they were charged what happened well you know i talked to mark mccloskey about this this morning mary and i asked him about his wife's handling of that weapon and he said i'll, I'll tell you what it is he said it's a his words not mine a 61 year old woman who is not all that familiar with handgun hasn't had a lot of training but she felt threatened with a mob of about 300 people marching up the the private street in front of our home and yelling at us uh you know he defended that he 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 felt that in she it was a panic situation and and i guess you know as as a homeowner not everyone uh, has had a lot of training in what you do in an emergency like that, and he feels like they did the best they could, and they had plenty of reason to be worried. According to him, people in the crowd were armed and were yelling uh, threatening um, words at them, which they're, they're now going to have to go into a courtroom, obviously, and defend themselves. I suspect with the Castle Doctrine, the Stand Your Ground Law in Missouri, the prosecutor will will have a difficult time getting a, a guilty uh, verdict in this case. So now you said now the video that I saw was shot by some of those protesters, if you will, criminals, because they were trespassing, they were committing a crime. 
uh, that was shot by them. I did not see anyone else with weapons, but w- do we have any proof that there was any anyone in that crowd who had weapons as well? The McCloskeys claim that there were. There, there are some still photos that appear to show at least one person in the crowd with some sort of a, of a weapon. And Mark McCloskey told me this morning that uh, one of the protesters pulled out two loaded uh, magazines from his pocket, uh, clapped them together at him, and told him he's next. Uh, he, he told me there were a lot of threatening things, yelled at them, you know, pointing out different rooms in their house. That's going to be my room. We're going to break that window first. You know, it's a he said, she said situation right now. And and this is their point, Mary, that the most of America, in fact, anybody who's seen the video has seen about 20 or 30 seconds worth of video for an incident that went on for 15 or 16 minutes. McCloskey didn't tell me this, but I suspect there are there's plenty of security video uh, to, to back up. A, a, a different version of what happened here. Yeah, I would assume in that neighborhood or they don't have security cameras because they feel secure because it is, is gated and closed off. Uh, but with the mayor you know, living on that street, I would suspect there's also some outside the mayor's the mayor's home <laughs> as well. And I never thought of that. So that's, that, that's uh, an excellent point. So they were charged, though, with flourishing a weapon. I'm not quite sure what that... It sounds like something that would happen at New York Fashion Week. <laughs> Uh, brandishing may be a different word for it in in Missouri. In the ordinance here in the city of St. Louis, it's it's flourishing, which is threatening somebody by waving a weapon around. Uh, that is the charge. It's a it's a class D felony, which is interesting. That these two people, these homeowners who who they claim felt they felt their lives were threatened, were charged with a a felony for standing on their front lawn on their property with weapons. And yet, just a, a few days prior to this, there had been a, a protest on what we refer to as the St. Louis Art Museum here, where people want to tear down the statue of St. Louis, mm-hmm. uh, believe it or not. And at that event, there's a picture snapped of, of, a, of a suspect punching uh, another, prote- another person at the event in the face. And there, there's, there's photographic evidence of it. That individual has been charged with a misdemeanor. So what we have here is a prosecutor in the city, uh, yes. George Soros supported, uh, but but duly elected prosecutor who is picking and choosing how she's going to prosecute people based on politics, in my opinion. Yes, and that person being the St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner. Uh, I don't know if you saw this since you do a morning show, but jo- uh, Senator Josh Hawley was on Fox and Friends this morning, and here's what he had to say about this. Yeah, they did have the right to do it. They did. They were standing on their own property. Let's just review the facts. They're on their own property. They were carrying lawful firearms that they lawfully possessed, and there were trespassers who had broken down a gate and were coming onto their property. And a couple said, get off our property. I mean, don't don't hurt us. Get off of our area. And they had every right to do that. This prosecutor is totally out of control. This is really, this is an abuse of power. You want to know what an abuse of power looks like? This is a textbook example. And that's why, Steve, I think the United States Department of Justice needs to open a civil rights investigation into the St. Louis Circuit Attorney's Office. Wow. 
yeah, going going a step further there. He he is. You know, the the question of the gate has come up a lot. Uh, Mark McCloskey tells me there's no dispute that that's private property, uh, despite what's been reported in the media. He said that he's lived in this place for 33 years. He's had repeated car break-ins and vandalism at his property because it is in a part of the city that is only several blocks away from from you know. Uh, economically stressed areas, let's put it that way. Uh, and he's had a lot of break-ins and vandalism at his property over the years. So so they're highly attuned to people coming onto their property who aren't supposed to be there. Now, were any of the protesters charged? I mean, we have their faces on video, right? We know who they were. As you said, there's probably lots of security cameras. Have they been charged? Uh, oddly enough, not yet. We keep waiting for that. Uh, But that has not happened uh, to date. And in fact, remember, Kim Gardner, the circuit attorney, is the one who who declined to press charges against about 30 people who were arrested during the rioting and looting in downtown St. Louis that took place about two weeks before this incident. She declined to prosecute people who broke into businesses, looted and in one case even burned a 7-Eleven. Yeah, (laughs) no. Well, come on. It's just the 7-Eleven. It's no big deal, right? They're just working it out. Yeah, They're very we'll frustrated. No big deal. Yeah. Who was it? The, the Baltimore, the mayor of Baltimore, who said, I'm just going to give them 24 hours to, to destroy. You know, just get it out of their systems. The uh, Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt was talking about this, uh, I want to say yesterday, because I guess they knew that these charges were coming. They had to have known this was coming. Here's what he had to say about the case and whether he would intervene or not. At a time when there are calls to defund the police, at a time with skyrocketing violent crime rates, including in here in Missouri and in St. Louis, we've got a prosecutor now targeting individuals for exercising uh, their fundamental rights under the under the. Um, uh, under the Second Amendment. And so enough is enough. The law is very clear. It's time uh, as the state's chief law enforcement officer to step in. So we're entering the case and we're seeking to have this case dismissed, um, not just for the McCloskeys, but for every Missourian whose rights are threatened by a rogue prosecutor who seeks to punish people for exercising their fundamental right to self-defense. See, and they can afford it. The McCluskey's can clearly afford legal defense, but there are probably a lot of people who can't, who see this happening and they're like, oh, they're, so they're not going to use their Second Amendment rights. And that's the point of this, isn't it? It really is, Mary, and I'm glad you pointed that out. I've, I've said on my own show that I don't live on a, on a private street and never will. I live in a subdivision where you can reach out and touch your neighbor. But if I heard a crowd, a raucous crowd of 300 people walking up my street, and I had no idea what their intentions were, uh, but I had seen video of, of, a, of a similar protest where things were looted and, and burned and ransacked, I might well be sitting on my front porch holding uh, the, the weapon of my choice. And you're right. That's what this comes down to. That's what that's what Eric Schmidt's referring to there. Uh, not letting a prosecutor pick and choose who she's going to prosecute uh, based on politics. Yeah. And, and this is really this is big because if it's a federal charge, they lose their firearms. And I saw the pictures of them having, you know, the, the federal agents, uh, excuse me, the, the local agents in their home, you know, looking, seizing the weapons and everything else. And how to feel so violating. First of all, the what they went through to initially is very violating. If you've ever had your home robbed or something stolen from you, you feel very violated. It's a weird feeling. And it had to be frightening. And then you feel violated. And then St. Louis comes down and makes it even worse. And now they're investigating you 
the victim here. And uh, I, they have the money, though, to be able to fight against it, which which is fantastic. So good for them. But I would love to see the feds get involved so that this doesn't happen again. So. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch is painting them as a, you know, a rich couple. Uh, they were this morning referred to as the new mascots of the Missouri Republican Party. Uh, the, the media here in town, at least uh, from a newspaper perspective, is not cutting them any slack at all. Of but the governor so. said he will pardon them if indeed they are convicted. Yeah. So, well, and then, of course, these two are tarred forever, but they said they're going to stay. They're not moving out. So if they're going to hold their ground, good for them. Mark Cox, thank you so much. It was great speaking with you. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Mark with a C, M-A-R-C, Cox 971 on Twitter. And uh, he is on 97.1 FM. The Talk in St. Louis, one of our affiliate stations. Thank you. Have a great day. You bet, Mary. Thanks. A couple people uh, want to chime in here. If you would like to chime in, 866-408-7669. That's 866-408-7669. I've got a couple calls. I'll get to those coming up on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. All right, we were just talking about Mark and Patricia McCloskey from St. Louis. They're the couple that uh, were defending their home because the mob broke down the fence and came into the gated community. And they were going to the mayor's home, who, by the way, the mayor's address is not public. The mayor lives in that gated community. Uh, The mayor's had a lot of death threats. And so she, because of security concerns, they have decided that her her personal information was, was kind of under lock and key. And they found out where she lives. And so they break down the gate. They come in and, and the McCloskeys say that they were being threatened. And I wonder if they weren't out on the porch if they would have been threatened. I don't know. But regardless, you have the right to do what they did. They didn't do anything wrong under the Castle Doctrine. They have now been charged with one count each of unlawful use of a weapon, which is flourishing. Uh, it's a Class D felony, and they face anywhere from one to four years in prison and fines of up to $5,000 if they're convicted. Shockingly, none of the protesters, the vandals, the people who committed the crime of breaking down the gate and going into a gated community as a mob, hundreds of them, so far, as far as we know, none of them have been charged with any crime. It's the people who are lawfully protecting their property, shockingly, who have been charged. I know. 866-408-7669 in Virginia Beach, Jimmy and WNIS. Hey, Jimmy, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. So what do you think? I think I'm appalled by some of these prosecutors and what we're seeing these days. Everything from the way that the prosecutor handled the case with the police officer in Atlanta to the McCluskey case right now. If I'm in a locked house, I'm in a locked-gated community, and somebody breaks that gate or that lock to come try to harm me or come into my area, I feel very threatened. And I think that what they did was great. They exercised their constitutional rights. They had guns legally obtained, and now all of a sudden they're crooks. And I mm-hmm. really think they need to start investigating some of these prosecutors and, and why they're trying to treat law-abiding citizens like criminals. 
Well, you heard our, our last guest, Mark Cox, who is in St. Louis, say that, uh, and I've heard this before, that uh, the prosecutor, the uh, circuit attorney, Kim Gardner, who filed the charges, uh, is, is you know, was funded by George Soros for her campaign. So George Soros is smart. He's got a lot of uh, bought and you know, funded a lot of these prosecutors. So you put them into positions like this. What happens if you, if they, if you do something like this and you're the prosecutor, the worst thing that happens is, um, you know, you get shot down, but you've made the point that I'm going to come for you. Even if you're legally exercising your rights, because a lot of people don't have the funds that the McCloskey's have to defend themselves. So what do people do? Well, out of an abundance of caution, they're not going to exercise their rights. So the message gets across and the effect is made, right? The, 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 that chilling effect on Second Amendment rights is, is, is done and, and you get that accomplished. So that's what they're doing here. It's, it, what happens, don't vote for her in the next election. But until then, if, if St. Louis is charged, you know, if they sue for millions of dollars, Kim Gardner's not paying for it. The taxpayers of St. Louis are paying for it. She's not paying for the defense. The taxpayers are paying for the defense. So there's no negative here for her to do this. And that's a problem. We, we've got a problem with, with prosecutors, with judges in our country who are activists, who are uh, basing the law on an agenda because there's no negative for them at all. Thanks for kicking it off for us. Let's go to Ed listening on WIBX in New York. Ed, good morning. Yeah. Hi. Hi, go ahead. Hello. Hi, go oh, ahead. Yeah. You're on the Brian Kilmeade show. Yeah. Let me preface my opinion by saying that I, I, I vote for Trump. I met Trump up here in New York. Uh, you're probably not like going to like what I've got to say, but the police are the ones that are at fault here. The doctors have a Hippocratic oath, and the police have a similar oath, in my opinion, to uphold the written law. Not the political whims of people like this prosecutor, and the mayors and everything else, where they're told to stand down on Monday, and then when the mayor's house gets attacked, not this mayor, like out in Seattle or uh, Michigan, wherever it happened, then they're told, go clean out the autonomous zones. Okay, Mm -hmm. the police, you know, what's going to happen? Gun confiscation. If If Biden gets in and they decide to do this, what are these police going to do? They know it's wrong. They have a Second Amendment. They're, they're bound by the law, just like a Hippocratic oath. Mm-hmm. And these police are not doing anything. They're, they should take the police unions, should take a stand and say, we uphold the written law, not your political agenda. So I think a lot of the fault of this, is just my opinion, a lot of the fault of this lies with the police and the feds who went into these people's houses to, to unlawfully confiscate these weapons. You know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm not going to jump on you, Ed. <laughs> I know that's kind of what you think, but but I do believe we're at a weird time. And I, too, am surprised by, you know, like cops with, with this, like, for instance, the coronavirus mass stuff, you know, enacting these executive orders. They didn't go through state legislatures. They're just executive orders that these um, these mayors are putting out there. I'm kind of surprised at, at the way some of the cops are like, like you know what, I'm just going to go do my job. I'm just going just gonna to do what I'm told to do because they are stuck between a rock and a hard place. And I get it. I get where it's not easy for them. And I don't know what the solution is. I don't know. It's a great way to leave it here on The Brian Kilmeade Show. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Good morning to you. The number to join me is 866-408-7669. That's 866-408-7669. Let's talk about the schools because schools across the country coming up with their plans for opening or not opening or maybe opening. We're not quite sure. We'll figure it out as we go along. Or, you know, maybe we'll be open like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, every third Tuesday and during full moons. Um, it's, it's all over the place. It's very, um, very arbitrary if you will. At least I think it's arbitrary. So now Florida weighing in. So here's what I want to hear from you. I want to know what's happening with the schools in your state or if it's by county or if it's by school district. What are they doing? How are they doing it? And how does that affect you if you if you have children? What do you think of that plan? Because, you know, in in L.A., they were told that they're not going the teachers told the state, the L.A. County, that they're not going back to school. The L.A. Teachers Union, I'm sure you heard about their ridiculous demands. They're like, we'll go back to school. Now, remember, just as I go through this, just remember, every time they're up for contract negotiations, the teachers tell us how important they are to our children's lives. I'm not saying they aren't, but I'm just saying these are the facts. They tell us how important they are to our children's lives, that they see our children more than we do Monday through Friday, right? That they play, if it weren't for teachers, our, our kids would be, you know, chasing cars and biting bumpers and, and barely, you know, living under stairwells. You know, they're, they're the ones who, who are in charge of their education and shaping them. So they're super important and we have to do everything we can to retain good teachers. So they have great benefits packages and, and the deal originally was, you know, great benefits packages, but they would make less in salary. Now, depending on where you are, they make really good salaries and they have great benefits. Not saying they don't deserve it, not getting into that aspect of this. Here's what they want now, though. Now they're starting to hold us hostage. In L.A., they're not going back to school because, you know, well, here's the other thing, too. They're so essential for my kids' lives and and for my child's upbringing and rounding out and being able to read and write and, and have a good future. But they're not considered essential. However, the guy cleaning out the Slurpee machine down at 7-Eleven is essential. The person working in the Amazon warehouse to fulfill the orders for the teachers who are home because they don't want to go back to school because they're scared, those people are essential. The parents of a lot of these children are essential. So when it comes time for contract negotiations, our teachers are the, the most essential people in our children's lives. When it comes to going to the classroom now, they're not so essential anymore. Suddenly, yeah, maybe not so much, but they'll do it. If you give them something. So in LA, they want Medicare for all because that's essential to your child's health care, I guess. Medicare for all. Uh, they, they talk about the boundless greed of the for-profit health industry. So uh, they also want a wealth tax, a new tax on unrealized capital gains to California billionaires. And then on top of that, they want a millionaire's tax added as well. And I'm sure they want all of the money that that generates to go into their pockets. I'm sure that's that's what that is they also weird i know because they're all about the children they give up their lives for your children they want the police defunded you know because they're they're all about keeping your children safe 
Um, they, they say we must shift the astronomical amount of money devoted to policing to, ready, education and other essential needs such as housing and public health. They want housing security. They want ordinances to prevent evictions if you don't pay up. They want rental relief funds for people who they say can't pay. They want, sh- they want the homeless community sheltered. They want permanent shelters for them. They want paid sick leaves for everybody. Doesn't matter if the mom and pop store down the street, the pizzeria can afford for paid sick leave for everyone. Everybody's going to have to pay out for it. They want a moratorium on charter and private schools. No competition. They, if, because if they have the monopoly, it gives them more power because, you know, they care about your children. Uh, financial support for illegal students and families, because you know what? Even if their children are U.S. citizens in the era of ICE raids and mass deportations, many undocumented parents are too fearful to apply for benefits for their children. You shouldn't be getting a dime. But the more illegals who get money, the more kids they get into the school system, the more they get them upon up on the on on the public dole. Again, the more power they have. None of this has anything to do with keeping these teachers safe. And they're science deniers. There's a study out of Finland and Sweden that the two governments did together. Sweden kept their schools open. Open. Finland shut theirs down. And they found that the rates of infection were about the same. Practically nothing. Seems children aren't carriers of COVID. And we know for a fact in this country, more children have died from the seasonal flu than have died from coronavirus. But we don't shut the schools down for the seasonal flu, right? We don't do that. But yet more children have died from seasonal flu than coronavirus. North Carolina Teachers Union, the Durham Association of Educators, just joined on board with the Los Angeles teachers, making all sorts of uh, very much the same demands. The Florida education system now filed a lawsuit yesterday against the governor and the state's Department of Education because they don't think the schools should reopen. Of course not. Who does this hurt the most? This hurts the poor kids the most. This hurts the kids who maybe only have one parent who can earn a living, who don't have time or or can't somehow work their schedules to have someone home when the kids are home. And if you defund the police, you've got these kids running all over the place. In Chicago, they just broke up a carjacking ring. It was comprised of a 10-year-old, 10 to 17-year-olds, one 10-year-old, and then going on up to 17, brandishing weapons. In broad daylight. And you ask, well, where are the parents? Maybe the parents are considered essential, unlike the teachers. And they can't give up their jobs in order to to be home with the kids. 866-408-7669. What does this do to you? Let's go to Brooklyn, New York, Aaron on WABC. Hey, Aaron. Good morning. You're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, Mary. Good morning, uh, great show. Thank you very much for taking my call. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, so my comment is really directed towards education in general and and uh, people of all ages going back to school. So I, I we have uh, uh, we have some friends whose um, son is uh, in graduate school at Stony Brook. Okay, and uh, in mathematics, that's his field. And I ran into him about a week ago, and I said, um, you know. 
Jake, you know, what's what's going on? You gonna, I guess you guys are going to do Zoom, right? No, no, no. We're going to have regular classes. We're going back to class in the fall. And I haven't verified that with other people, but that's what I heard. That's okay. What I heard. So what do you as, think about that? As far as, and as far as um, you know, kids going back to school, uh, I'm a retired clinical psychologist, and I think they absolutely need to go back. I mean, look what happened in Sweden. Sweden allowed kids from whatever, K through 12, I think it was K through 12 yeah, or K right. through something, where they, um, you know, it, it was no big problem. I'm sure some of them maybe did come down, but not any more than kids having a cold or a flu. So uh, th- this whole thing to me is partisan politics, because what I listened to, uh, I recently listened to something, some expert um, on, what is it, National Public Radio or WNYC or whatever mm-hmm. they're called. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a guy, uh, I forget his name, I think he's the director of infectious diseases uh, in Minnesota. Um, you know, and he was also on PBS about a month or two ago. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's like a Fauci kind of guy that, you know, that the media turns to. I think he was on MSNBC. He was on some other stations. Yeah. And he's going like, well, in six months, we're going to have another uh, big outbreak because in the last 250 years, uh, you know, we had, uh, you know, a second wave in six <laughs> months and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But then he added somewhere he put what he put in is that those those things were those uh, diseases were were the flu. This is a virus. So he sort of like qualified it by saying, well, you know, I mean, he didn't but, emphasize that. Yeah, but see, here's the thing. And thank you so much for the call, Aaron. Thanks for kicking it off. The flu is the flu, depending on the strain, can be a coronavirus strain. Right. So but this is a novel coronavirus strain. There are many, many different strains of coronavirus. Uh, But you're right. I do think it's political. And I do think the kids need to get back to school. think you got to get their butts in the seats. It's good for their mental health. Terry in Orlando on WDBO. Terry, good morning. You are on the Brian Kilmeade show. Hi. How are you doing? I'm doing just great. So what are they doing there? And what do you think of it? Well, I just visited two of my kids yesterday going into first and third grade. And my daughter just told me they just kicked it back to they live in Orange County. They kicked it back to August 27th. Um, if we can open the Mouse House, um, if we can open Disney, I think yeah. we can open the schools. Um, I think that if the teachers are older or have an underlying condition, I think they should allow them to teach remotely. But I think the kids need to go back to school. Um, my my grandkids, you know, I, I helped them last year when we well, when we were closed down last school year. I went over there for two or three days a week and did their virtual learning with them while my daughter was trying to work from home. Um, Okay, just to tell you, even they don't do the basics, one of the art modules for a kindergartner, he's five years old, doesn't want to sit at the computer anyways because he's at home and doesn't understand what virtual learning is, was Monet was an impressionist. Really? That might be important when you get in middle school, but when you're five, You just need your basics, and I think that the kids are missing socially. I think they're missing their friends. I think they're missing their teachers, and to tell you the truth, um, I'm out in the public. I'm a public servant, and I see a lot of people that are frustrated and complain about having their kids home. That's not good 
for a kid to be home with someone who doesn't really want them to be there. Yeah, Terry, I well said. I agree with you. I think it's frustrating for the kids, and I do think they're missing out on a lot. I actually, a friend of mine actually came up with a brilliant solution to this, and I will share it with you coming up on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Mary Walter and for Brian Kilmeade, 866-408-7669. Just, just finding out what they're doing in your area, your state, your school district, whatever it happens to be, as far as reopening goes. Now, I know in, uh, for instance, Fairfax, Virginia, you've got like this weird hybrid. Betsy DeVos used them as a what not to do, kind of like a before picture, but she didn't put the, the black square over the eyes so that nobody knew who they were. She just called them out. They're doing a hybrid and the school, it's only going to be four days a week and it's just a mess. So uh, parents are, are just, just left hanging, I guess. And especially like, what about single parents? If your kids don't go to school, what are you supposed to do? And do you think they should be in school? Let's go to Pismo Beach, California. Julie, good morning. You're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi. Hi. Good morning, Mary. Um, I just wanted to share my perspective a little bit. I'm a special ed teacher in Santa Barbara County. And, um, you know, we did the distance learning this last year, this last four months or so. And um, I just found it very sad that um, my students, a lot of the population, are Hispanic, and not all of them, but um, a lot of them, the parents are having a hard time helping the kids. The kids aren't doing work at all. Um, I have one child who I do Zoom meetings with, but um, he cries all the time because he misses his friends and he can't do his work and can't get the help that he needs at home. So I just think that we need to go back and at least on some type of a basis. And um, these kids' lives are important, and they're missing their education. How do you feel about the, and I don't know if it's all of the teachers' unions in, in California, but the L.A. teachers' union and the ridiculous demands they're making, how is that being received by, if you live in California, I'm sure you have liberal friends, how, how are they receiving that? Do they think these are valid concerns and valid claims that the teachers' union is making in, in exchange for going for going back and doing their jobs, you know, funny that. Um, I actually haven't talked to a lot of people. Um, some of my closer friends believe the same way as I do, so that's all I have to say on that. But um, okay, I think overall, you know, I know teachers in general have such a heart for kids, so I can't believe that you know, teachers that I know that I work with, that they believe that the kids should not be getting a good education. I just don't believe that that can be true. Well, bless you for what you do, because I know, listen, I know being a teacher isn't easy. Julie, thank you. Being a teacher is not easy. I I don't think it's easy at all. I just know where I live. If you you stick it out for like 20, 25 years, you're making 100 and uh, upwards of 120,000 a year. 
uh, depending on your school district, plus all those amazing benefits they get on top of it. Uh, retirement plans better than any taxpayer will ever have. So I think you should do your job. And I know it's a hard job. I know it's not an easy job, but and especially special ed teachers, man, there you, there is a special place in heaven for you because that is not an easy job depending on your kids. And you have a lot of patience and a lot of heart for it. So I give you a lot of credit. Uh, let's head back to New York, other side of the country, WABC. Laura, good morning. You're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, I started off by telling your screen, um, your, your phone call screener that I've never called in on a radio show, although I listen to all of them. Um, I, I, I was a little offended off the bat, uh, I'll be honest with you, to be lumped in with um, teachers being um, saying that they don't want to go back, um, they'd rather stay home and have all these demands, and that is not, by, by any stretch of the imagination, the feel of teachers as a whole. We, many of my colleagues, want to go back for mm-hmm. the sake of ourselves, for the sake of the parents, for the sake of our students. We have uh, my, my personal um, and, the, and other students who are outstanding students that their, their, their emotional needs were not met, their grades plummeted through virtual, tra- virtual training and mm-hmm. education. They want to go back. We want to go back. We want our students back. We want everything to be as normal as possible. We love our jobs. We love our students. We want to be working in the classroom. There are teachers that have very serious concerns. They are scared. We are nervous. Not myself personally, not many of my colleagues, but those that have underlining medical con- conditions, sure. they're scared. It's of legitimate. Um, they're not looking to negotiate anything more. On another note, I did hear what you said about salaries. It depends where you live. Right. Um, some of us pay very high taxes. Our cost of living is very, very expensive. And many of our taxes go right back into the school system that we live within. Many of us have to work second jobs, work over the summers to meet our, yeah. our um, life expenses. Right. So but, it's not so easy for us. No, it's not so easy for anybody. You know, my, my, my husband, you know, when you come down to it, it, is, it makes less per hour than a teacher. And he's got he's got a doctorate and he's up to his eyeballs in coronavirus patients. But my and I was not demeaning teachers at all. I'm just saying that, you know what? Here's the deal. If you don't want to be lumped in with other teachers, don't let your unions speak for you that way. Don't let your unions push back on them and make your demands known. They're representing you and they're the ones lumping you all in together and making these demands that are spreading across the country and it's really weird how all the demands are the same so if you don't like it boot them you're letting them represent you and they're you're letting them put that public face on you and maybe something needs to change along those lines wouldn't that be great you're listening to the brian kilmeade show Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. I'm Mary Walter in for Brian Kilmeade. And uh, listen, schools are supposed to be starting. And as this spreads across the country, it started in L.A. and in North Carolina. You see these school teachers who are saying, no, not going back to school. Now, again, 
it's not all teachers. And I'm sorry that you feel, feel if I'm lumping you all in together, but we have to speak generically because your unions are speaking for you. So listen, unions are good. Unions are bad. This is one of those things that if you don't agree with the union, they put that face on all teachers on, in, in their union. Um, so yeah, looks as if this is the opinion of all of you, whether you like that or not. So that's how we have to talk about it. The Florida Education Association represents 145,000 teachers, educators. They filed a lawsuit against the governor and the state's Department of Education because they don't want schools to reopen at the end of August. They say it's unsafe due to the coronavirus pandemic and it violates the state's constitution. Now, they're totally ignoring science. And these are the same people who, if you disagree with them on climate change, will call you a science denier. But the science shows us, there's a study out of France, there's a study out of Germany, there was a joint study between Sweden and Finland. They're weeks ahead of us. And we know from the science that more children have died in this country from seasonal flu than coronavirus. We know from the science from, that were done in those other studies that children are, apparently are not carriers of the virus because Sweden never closed their schools. They're still going strong. If they had had teachers keeling over, then then um, you you would have known about it. They would have shut the schools down. And if masks are the solution, and we can all if, if essential workers are safe with masks on in order to get you your food that you're getting have you know delivered to your home because you're too afraid to go to the grocery store, if those workers are essential and can wear masks in order to serve you, then why can't you have masks in school in order to keep the teachers safe who are afraid? If it's good enough for for the other essential workers, why is it not good enough for teachers? They say the Florida Constitution mandates that it be a uniform, efficient, safe, secure, and high-quality system of free public schools. And so they're suing to keep the children home. Now, it, it, you know, there's a, there's a South Korea study, to be fair, that says that children aged 10 to 19 may be able to transmit the, vir- the virus as efficiently as older adults. But again, if masks are good enough for the rest of the essential workers, you're not even considered essential for some weird reason, then wear masks. Rocco on Long Island on WRCN, good morning. You are on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi. You know, I, Mary, it's so good to hear you on the radio. It's fabulous, fabulous. It's a treat, <laughs> a treat. You know, Mary, it's it's so important to wear the masks because it, it's not only the mask itself, but, you know, when you see someone else in a mask with the mask on it, you're immediately reminded that you the distancing. So it's not only the mask, it's uh, keeping one's distance there. And I believe that the parents should decide uh, whether the children should go to school. And as far as I'm concerned, I think they should. I think that we, we should open up the schools there. Uh, in my opinion. I, I agree with you, and Rocco, thank you so much for the warm welcome. I always appreciate that. Thank you. I, I, I think you can, you got to get back to living. If other people are essential, I just think it's fair. And look, if, if the masks work, why do I need to be six feet away from the back of your head in line at Costco? I don't understand that. I, I, I've got the, the circles on the floor. So of course, I purposely don't stand on the circle because if the mask keeps you safe, you're not going to get coronavirus from me being, you know, two feet behind your head. That's not going to happen. So if, if the, do the masks, keep the kids safe. 866-408-7669. Let's head to Utah. Uh, James listening on the Fox app. Good morning. You're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. James, what are they doing in Utah as far as getting the kids back to school? 
Well, I will say this. My father has been a school teacher for 40 years, and he's a school teacher on the Indian reservations or Native American, I'm sorry, reservations down in uh, Arizona, which they have been hit so hard. Obviously, I mean, they, their immune systems are a lot more difficult than normal people. They're still trying to go to school. And the fact that these Cali cats out there are just complaining over not, I mean, they're, I, I like, I'm just, I just, I don't understand. And that there are great teachers out there that do not want to be put in the same group as those California teachers, because I mean, they, they really are heroes. I know you had a caller. She was a special ed teacher. Oh my Lord. That's a hero right there. I don't know. I don't know how they do it, but the fact that if they could get their act together down in Arizona and Chinle Middle School, like, why can't these California teachers do it? I, like, what's so yep. difficult about it? I mean, they don't even have running water, hardly, or, or Internet access, and they still, they still are going out there. They're still teaching. They're still making the calls to the kids. As well, as, they're doing welfare calls down there. The teachers are basically calling the parents saying, hey, how are the, how's the kids doing? Are they doing this? And then he has to call the next student's parents and the next. I mean, he's on the phone for hours. Like what? God bless I mean, him. this this can this can be done. You know, I don't I don't have the answers whatsoever, but it, it can be done. If it could be done out there where they don't even have hardly any internet access and they're making something work, I mean, these California cats would be just humiliated. That's, yeah, James, thank you say. so much for that. And bless your father for what he does, because there are so many underserved communities and these teachers want defunding the police and then the money to go to them, <laughs> you know, to make it to the schools, of course, so that they can have even more when you have some of these other communities that are doing so much with so much less. Now, I said that my friend had a solution to this problem, and I told you I would share it with you. So my friend Patty, got to give her full credit. She is uh, on a, a a board, you know, a count, you know, county council, town council, uh, you know, going to be mayor somewhere along the line. And she said, it's so easy, you know, because the teachers in her town, they're going through this. And she said, it's super easy. We're not going to send the kids to school. She said, we'll call their bluff. They're afraid of the kids. The teachers have to report every single day, like a regular school day and teach. And the and it will be streamed video stream it live so the kids can watch it from home so because the teachers not about going back so the teachers don't want to be back in the classroom they want to continue to do this from home so so let's let them let's let's let them teach you really want to teach you really want to go back okay you're afraid of the kids fine we'll keep the kids out because her bet is that it's not about being afraid of the kids it's about demands that they're making in order to get things that they want number one and number two about being able to do it from home that's what this is all about. And I thought, you know, that's actually a pretty good idea. Doesn't solve the child care problems, doesn't solve any of that. But at least it puts them on notice. And you as a parent can see exactly where their loyalties lie. Do they really want to go back and teach if they have to go in every day? Some will. I'm willing to bet a lot won't. 866-408-7669. Let's get Tammy from Alabama in here. Tammy, you're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi. Well, good morning to you. Good morning. Um, I'm calling. I am actually a uh, bus driver and a mother to two daughters. One will be a sophomore at one of the uh, major colleges in Alabama, and I have a senior in high school. And ever since we shut down in March, it has been one of the biggest um, struggles because my daughter was a freshman in the college. And going to online learning when 
she is studying chemical engineering was not the greatest thing. And then I had a junior who was finishing up and we didn't finish online because by March they were told, well, you're close to your your end of the year, so we'll just go and we'll conform your things. My point I'm making, her grades, my point I'm making is my girls, I am pushing them to go back to school because they have to learn to live in this society, in this world, become productive citizens, and go and learn how to manage this because this is not going to be an ending thing. If this happens, look at history. So much can happen down the road, and I, as a mother, yes, I am concerned concerned and worried. But the other thing, as a bus driver, too, I'm the first person those kids see. I see what those kids come from, their homes, how mm-hmm. they come and everything. And it saddens me because of the previous color. I, I am at a high school that we have regular kids, but we have special needs. And it just hurts that I understand the fear of everybody, but it's time that we try to get back to school. There's always we can do an alternative, but get our kids back in school. Give it a try. Let them learn. Let the teachers who want to teach, who make a difference, get them back to school because we it's just we just need to get back to school and Mm -hmm. get and get things going and have an option if it does break if it does break right. out again, then we have a backup plan. But as, yes. I guess I guess I get tired of hearing follow the science, and and I, I'm just where is following the science leading us to? Well, you know what? It, it I guess <laughs> this in the weird times that we live in now, the left has you know their own history and, and their own set of facts, and it's your personal truth, uh, Tammy. Thank you. But I think we can look at the countries who have gone before us who are further along in this disease, and we have an experiment. Sweden stayed open. So we know what happened in Sweden. They protected the elderly. They protected those with um, who had compromised immune systems, those who were sick. They didn't put coronavirus patients, recovering patients, in nursing homes. They protected those communities. They did far better than we. They, uh, those kids, they didn't close down the schools. So we know we have a lot of data from Sweden. We have a lot of data from Finland when they opened up. So why not learn from that? That's, that's just the way that, that I look at this. And what happens when the next flu comes around, right? Because we're going to go into flu season. Oh, there's the flu. People are getting sick. Oh, we can't do that. We're, are we ever going to go back? Is that what the game is here? I don't know. I'm beginning to think that's exactly what the game is here. We're just going to continue to pay people to not work. And you know what that does? That gets you into universal income, which is what the, what the left wants. The government to give people a certain amount of money every month. That's what they want. And you know what that does? That frees them to go out and protest and riot and tear things down and further their agenda. And in 10 years, you're eating out of the garbage like Venezuela. 866-408-7669. What are they doing with the schools? Also, you know, universities too. Uh, coming up. I have friends who are paying for housing, uh, you know, apartments, especially if their kids are seniors living off campus. They're, they, have, they have an apartment that they've paid for. They're not getting the money back. So my friend sent their daughter up to the University of Connecticut, even though everything's virtual. She's with her friends in their house that they because the parents are paying for it. And it's not like they're getting a break on tuition or anything else along those lines. Think of the money these colleges are saving because they're you're paying for um you know, for heating and, and light and on water and all this other stuff 
for things that aren't even happening anymore. So those colleges, the bills are much less because they're not using the facilities. But I'd be curious to see if anybody got money back on their tuition because I'm pretty sure no one is. All right, your call is coming up on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. So you're seeing state after state, we're talking about the schools and, and people going back to school, and you're seeing state after state and school district after school district, especially when they try to reopen, that the teachers unions pump the brakes on that and go, no, 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 no. You want us back in the classroom? Well, there's some things we want in return. Besides our salary and our benefits, we want other things. We think that there should be, be um, universal income. We want Medicare for all. We think illegals should have access. They should, they should get money too. Uh, and, and, and on, it's just, it's just crazy. The things that they want that have nothing to do with, with educating your children, you, the taxpayer and all of these things that they want. It's going to take money out of your pocket. They also want to, I find interesting, a moratorium on charter and private schools. Uh, they, they, uh, in, in LA, they want no more publicly operated, publicly funded charter schools. They want the, the resources drained from those schools because they say they take the resources away from school districts. Uh, and in other words, no competition, by the way, either. So we get everything we want and there will be no competition. So you parents, you either homeschool your little youngsters or you pay on top of it to send them to private school, which is why they don't want school choice. So they're all about the children but they don't want school choice. And again, not talking about all the teachers, but definitely your union and they represent you. So um, they want paid sick leave, housing security, defunding the police. Uh, Where you are, kids going back to school? Should they be going back to school? Are you okay with your kids going back to school? Colleges, universities, anybody get a refund? I don't know anybody who got a refund, yet the schools have got to be pocketing money because of all the things, all the overhead that's built into that tuition, None of it's open. They're not spending a dime on that stuff or else their costs are greatly reduced. But you, the parent, you're still cha-chinging every step of the way. 866-408-7669. Jerry in Daytona Beach, Florida. Hey, Jerry, good morning. Right. Good afternoon. And uh, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, you've hit a, a probably, I would say about 40% is probably unions and they're going to make this that hard. The other is, in our area now, we have a lot of attorneys that are putting ads out. They're ready to represent the teachers um, that have issues with this. And any teachers that, are, that, that come up positive, the, the lawyers are already got the ads running. And uh, my wife and I are talking about it. We have a, a granddaughter that's a senior and a, and a grandson, a freshman, that will be coming this year. They might as well put testing sites on these uh, larger school campuses because uh, at any given time, probably three times a year, my grandson will have an ear infection and he'll be in school with a hundred degree temperature. And if they're running around, I mean, it's, I foresee, I think it's going to be really, really hard to complete or ever have any semblance of a complete school year. And that's by design. And it's really sad. Um, my, my niece was finishing up her senior year at college and, um, she was down there. My brother's like, I'm paying for the apartment, you know, and she really missed her friend. She was miserable. And he's like, go, 
you know, go have fun. You want to have fun? You want to be, you want to remer- learn remotely down there? She was pretty much done anyway. She was ahead of, you know, finished early. Um, and she went and, you know, they had parties and this and that. I said, it doesn't look like social distancing. And my sister-in-law's like, they've all, all they've all tested positive. They, they are all had it. None of them were sick and they've all had it. They didn't I, even know it. Uh, I was and, amazed when I seen that, that there are 28 states that have less than, and it's still a lot. Don't get me wrong. They have less than 600 total Corona COVID deaths. So uh, that's 28 out of 50. A lot of people think that it, and when I mentioned that to somebody, and that was as of yesterday, the CDC numbers, which the other thing in Florida is the testing. I mean, if a child, if, if, a, if a school district tells you to go get your child tested, he's got 101, and it comes back with positive, and a week later he's negative, which happens around here way too frequently. I mean, again, what I, I, I foresee disaster. Mm-hmm. There's gonna, yeah. Thank you so much, Jerry. And he talked about uh, lawsuits, Jerry. Thank you. You know, there's already class action lawsuits against doctors shaping up because your loved one was in the hospital, or you uh, got treated with hydroxychloroquine, or you wanted hydroxychloroquine and the doctor wouldn't give it to you because you know you're not a doctor, and uh, on and on, and you had adverse effects, or somebody died. The lawsuits are already stacking up and these doctors didn't know what they were up against. They were following what was considered, you know, CDC guidance at the time. And um, they're, they're going to get they're You're going to see massive lawsuits involving doctors. You're going to see a lot of doctors uh, being hit and just saying, you know what, I'm done. I'm out. And that's another big thing we're going to have to deal with coming up as well. So this whole thing is just a mess. It really tr- I'm so glad I don't have kids in school. It's the only thing I can say, because I think. A lot of parents are probably going to wind up, they're probably going to wind up doing homeschooling. Anyway, thank you so much. I'm Mary Walter, in for Brian Kilmeade on the Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.